0: We all hear warnings from a young age about the importance of trusting our gut in dangerous situations. We're told to be cautious of suspicious strangers, especially after dark and always to be safe rather than sorry if we feel that something is off. Sometimes it can be easy to brush off this advice. We may think that there's no way anything terrible could actually happen to us in our own lives We've all heard stories in movies and on TV of deranged killers and cold-blooded psychopaths. But if we really came face to face with these monsters in a dark parking lot one night, how would we react? Would we fight for our lives, flee out of fright, or freeze unable to move and paralyzed by fear? The woman we interviewed for today's episode unwittingly discovered her answer to that question on a pitch black night back in 1998. What is up, EWU Crew? We love hearing real life, true stories from our listeners, just like the one you will be hearing today. If you or someone you know have had a similar unsettling encounter that you would like to share, please reach out to us to speak about setting up an interview that could be featured in an EWU episode. As always, be sure to hit the like button and subscribe. Now, let's get into it. Wesley Shermantine and Lauren Herzog were like two peas in a pod. Born only two months apart in the mid 1960s, they grew up as indisputable best buddies, navigating their youth side by side in the small town of Linden, a quaint rural area of California, nestled a little way south of Sacramento and 95 miles east of San Francisco. During their childhoods, they lived on the exact same street within the quiet farming town, which had a tiny population of less than 2000 people. Wesley had affluent parents who made the young boy's life very comfortable and he was never left wanting for material possessions. However, his outwardly idyllic family life held dark secrets that his parents tried to keep hidden from the public eye. The Shermantines had a collective reputation in the town for being people you didn't want to cross unless you wanted to risk being ominously dealt with. Despite young Wesley's harsh home life with expectations for perfection, he and Lauren were never afraid to get their hands dirty and they spent most of their time outdoors in the rugged wilderness, hiking through the surrounding hills or hunting and fishing in the woods. In 1984, the pair graduated from Linden High School, and despite their troublemaking tendencies, it seemed as if they were headed on the right path. However, just one year later, an incident would shock the whole town, sending it into disarray and throwing these two fresh graduates into the eye of suspicion. A local teenage girl named Chevelle Chevy Wheeler went missing on October 16, 1985. She had been dropped off at school in the morning, just like any other day, but she apparently had other plans for the afternoon. She confided in some of her girlfriends that she had an exciting meetup to attend. She was going to skip class to hang with a boy she knew. But when Chevy gleefully snuck off the school grounds that day, neither she nor her friends could have ever guessed that this was the last time the innocent young student would ever be seen alive. When Chevy failed to return from her secret excursion, Wesley was identified as a person of interest. Authorities pinned him down as the boy that Chevy had made plans to meet up with. Unfortunately for Wesley, word of his troublesome antics and mischievous inclinations had traveled fast in the small town and his reputation had preceded him. Townspeople knew that he and Lauren had gotten into some shady business throughout the years, like roughhousing, drinking, and most concerningly, hard drugs, specifically, the two boys had begun to heavily use a methamphetamine. If you're familiar with the drug terminology, you may be realizing how the duo got their infamous title. The word speed in the moniker Speed Free Killers originated from the influence of meth on the pair's violent activities. Authorities and theorists alike believe that this behavior altering drug was largely responsible for the boys' alleged killing frenzies and Chevy's sister later shared an important detail during the ensuing investigation that aligned all too well with Wesley's known drug use. She reported that young Chevy had mentioned her intentions to smoke marijuana with Wes at their hangout that day. Accordingly, because of Wesley's already questionable public image and connection with 16-year-old Chevy, the police obtained a search warrant and investigated the young man's secluded hunting cabin. Inside the small building, they discovered blood. At first, they couldn't be sure if this evidence was meaningful. After all, it was a hunting cabin. Perhaps the blood was from a freshly caught deer. And indeed, Wesley and his folks maintained that previously slaughtered game was to blame for the red stains. But when the blood was tested, The results seemed to confirm law enforcement's worst fears. The blood type matched Chevy's. And then another strange turn of events fueled police suspicion. Allegedly, Wesley, who was fairly well acquainted with the Wheeler family, had confidently shown up at Chevy's home the day after she went missing. Pulling up casually in his pickup truck, and playing dumb when her concerned mother and father asked him what had happened to their beloved daughter. He apparently laughed at the parents' frantic questioning and shrugged off the implications of Chevy's disappearance with a sort of smug nonchalance, asking them how he could possibly know anything. Despite his surety that he wasn't under suspicion, authorities were already on his trail after finding the incriminating blood samples As concerning as this revelation was, the fact remained that the police were unable to locate any concrete evidence to charge Wesley. DNA analysis technology was not sophisticated enough at the time to garner any real conclusions. So the case went cold and Wesley walked free. Over a decade later, police would discover that Lauren and Wesley The two young troublemakers they had let walk free went on to orchestrate what some have estimated to be 72 murders between 1984 and 1999. The deadly streak is thought to have begun around the same time as their meth abuse when the two were only about 18 or 19 years old. How the duo pulled off this deadly stunt for so long without detection is hard to say for certain. But another missing person case that began 14 years after Chevy's pulled the elusive young men back into the spotlight. On November 14th, 1998, Cindy Vander Heiden, a 25-year-old woman who had grown up in San Joaquin County just as Wesley and Lauren did, suddenly and inexplicably vanished without a trace. Nobody quite knew what to make of her disappearance as just earlier that same day, Cindy had eaten lunch and casually shopped with her mother before heading to a karaoke night at Linden Inn. This establishment was one of the two bars owned by Cindy's father, both of which that Wesley and Lauren had frequented for quite a while. On this particular day, Cindy dropped her car off at her dad's other bar before meeting up with a friend. And the two rode together to the Linden Inn, excited for a fun night of singing and letting loose. Now, Cindy's older sister reportedly had a fling with Lauren at one time. So when Cindy saw him and Wes at the bar, she struck up a casual and friendly conversation. After a relatively uneventful night, Cindy's friend gave her a ride back to her vehicle, which she had left behind at her father's other bar before following Cindy home as she drowsily drove down the deserted streets at 2 a.m. After the friend was sure that Cindy had safely pulled into the driveway of her home, she drove away secure in the knowledge that Cindy had made it back safe and sound to the household where both of her parents were already asleep. And indeed, the next morning, Cindy's parents would report hearing their daughter pull into the driveway in the wee hours of the night. But it appeared that Cindy herself had never entered the home. In the morning, she was nowhere to be seen And while her mother grew increasingly nervous, her father decided to call up Cindy's workplace and see if she had somehow managed to wake up, get ready and depart for her shift without either parent knowing. This seemed like the more obvious solution, but unfortunately Cindy's parents' misgivings were confirmed when they were shockingly told that Cindy had never shown up for work. Her father immediately began driving around town in a panic searching for any possible signs of his missing daughter. But what he soon discovered didn't help to ease his worries. Cindy's car was abandoned in a local cemetery. Her money, cell phone and purse were all inside. But of course there was no Cindy. When the police arrived to investigate, their first instinct was to suspect foul play, but they couldn't deny that there were no signs of a struggle present at the scene. Over a thousand citizens dedicated their time to searching for the missing girl over the following weeks, but to no avail. By then, authorities were putting the puzzle pieces together. What a strange coincidence, they thought, that Wesley was not only a primary suspect in the disappearance of Chevy all those years ago, but now he was also one of the last witnesses to interact with Cindy before she vanished. Attempting to delve deeper into this theory, They focused on searching the isolated hills and scouring mine shafts that Wesley and Lauren were known to frequent. After these intensive searches, they were left empty-handed. Still, with all reasoning to believe that Wesley was involved, the police couldn't turn a blind eye to the smug young man. In 1999, they searched his vehicle and once again found blood, but this time, the bodily fluid was definitively identified as that of Cindy Vanderheiden. While these DNA analysis results were being confirmed, the police began laying the groundwork for their case against Wesley. And to do that, they knew their best bet was to get his faithful friend, Lauren, to start talking. He was brought in for interrogation. And although he was initially a bit tight-lipped, he soon began to spill secrets of a magnitude that went way beyond the scope of what anyone had expected. At first, he was defensive and refused to throw Wesley under the bus. He gets pretty wild when he's when he's doing drugs or when he's cranking and when he's drinking,
1: doesn't he? He gets just, pretty wild,
0: you know, doesn't
1: he? I don't know, wild enough, I'd say. You ever think that Wes would be capable of forcing a girl to have with him? I don't know. Well, maybe maybe not.
0: But in an interview soon after, Lauren had a change of heart and opened up a lot more.
1: She now went back to go back to her car. She said that several time, you know. we was going that way. I was still went back said, say something been to the road going. Good. Well, he started telling her to do stuff on. And it's kind of a back and forth argument kind of thing. And I can just do stuff as in, uh, relax, I guess, that's what you thought. And he's getting wilder and longer, more, and wound up more and more. I, I told him at one point, don't kill her, man. Take her back to her car. I got a car right. I started back nuts. He kind of looked at me one time and I was gone. I didn't know what to
0: do. Well. His speech is hard to decipher in this dated footage. But he seems to describe something about Wes holding down the victim.
1: You know, down, you know. I natural. I mean. Dying, you know. I feel like I told him he called her? Yeah.
0: He then makes a point to claim that Wesley tried to get him to join in on the foul acts. But Lauren, of course, says he refused to get physically involved.
1: Trying to get me to do this and that, and I wouldn't do it. That's him no way. I was drunk and wrapped her up. Put in the trunk. I almost don't even know where I was. I mean, I know I was there, but my mind was just gone. I was just in there. Comment, I just felt like. I oh, wanted to look bad. And I couldn't believe what I just did You see. And it was too
0: much. The interrogator asks Lauren if this new story is the truth, since it directly conflicts with what he had told them earlier about Wes's innocence. Lauren nods that, yes, this story is an accurate retelling of what really happened that night with Cindy. And yet another interrogation session, Lauren shares the sad details of Cindy's last moments. He also says Wesley boastfully asserted that he would not be going to prison.
1: She tried to bargain with me more or less. Kind of, a you know, please let me go and then, you know, I don't know if it was trying to talk, but maybe she just had calmed down and just tried to talk to him. I don't know if she was trying to calm him down or not. Well it's if was his reaction? I guess it wasn't the trying to calm him down. It was... And, then she was, and then she started screaming again. She was talking calm though for a minute, and then she started screaming again. When he said, so what's the story? What did you tell him? I, I don't think I gave him a reply. I don't remember giving him a reply. When he asked you, or he told you, I'm not going going to prison, did he just say that, or did you ask him, well, why'd you kill her? I guess he did. I didn't ask him that. He said it. He just said it. I'm not going to prison. Who the told on My reply, I think, was is that you don't want to see me for a while was I was just, I to turn the clocks back. I'd say I was to turn the clocks
0: back first. Lauren goes on to confirm his accusations that Wesley was behind it all. The assault, the murder, everything. He makes a show of claiming to be scared of his accomplice and says that he feels ashamed that he didn't do more to help Cindy. If he could turn back time, he says he would have tried to find a better way to assist, and maybe even save the helpless victim. West
1: Sherman time. Yep. You're scared of West Sherman time. He's your friend. Like I said we moved time. That's why I it's, it's, it's just did, just so last way he is, where he turned me on, he ain't same person as was my friend. Are you scared because he's unpredictable? Yes, sir. What else were you scared of? Anything. What was the other one? I was ashamed and scared the other way. Ashamed of what? He is of one. <laughs> I think at one time you had mentioned being ashamed of what, Lauren? I'm not even do anything. Say, do nothing, do oh, nothing for what? You to be able to build a stop it? Yeah. You had to do it all over again, would you have stopped it? Try it. i tried.
0: out a way to try it. The officers warned Lauren that Wes had already made incriminating statements, confessing that the duo in question had already hunted everything including the ultimate game.
1: Wes is making comments about you. Yeah. Things such as, you know, Lauren and I have hunted just about everything, including the ultimate game. You know what that ultimate game is. There is no ultimate game for him. He's implicating you. What I foresee here is that when we haul Wes in here, he's gonna pin it
0: on me. It is clear to see the trust and loyalty Lauren once had for Wes was dissipating as the interrogators carefully selected their words to drive a wedge between the friends. And just as planned, Lauren would go on to reveal a slew of crimes he said Wesley had committed outside of the Cindy case. Lauren first explained that the previously unsolved death of a hunter from Utah in 1994 had been Wesley's doing. According to Lauren's tale, Wesley had deliberately shot the man dead for no apparent reason after crossing paths with him. Lauren continued to spout his surprising confessions. He reported that Wesley was behind the murder of a man named Henry Howell, who had been discovered in his parked car on the side of a highway with his head and mouth grotesquely bashed in. As Lauren tells it, Wesley jumped at the opportunity after seeing the vulnerable man pulled over and immediately stopped the car to seize the victim's shotgun and use the weapon to end Howell's life before robbing him. It was only a matter of time before Wesley himself was brought in for questioning. In the disturbing interrogation footage, He's asked what he thinks the chances are that the blood discovered in his car belonged to Cindy. He deflects the question.
1: You tell me, what are the possibilities of Cindy's blood being in your trunk? I don't know that it is Cindy's blood. We're telling you, it's 169 million to one. And I don't know how it got in there.
0: He then makes a weird, non committal statement, saying that he would have already been long gone if he had been up to no good with Cindy. His whole attitude towards the situation is clearly not that of a concerned friend who is worried about Cindy's well being.
1: If I had something to do with Cindy's disappearance, I would have been gone a long time ago. Are you afraid of anybody out there, somebody threatening you? No.
0: The annoyance is evident in his facial expressions and tone of voice as he recounts the night at the karaoke bar with Lauren. He says they talked with Cindy, but left the bar when it shut down for the night. He's asked what he thinks about the possibility of Lauren's involvement in the case.
1: Lauren might be responsible for Cindy's blood in your trunk. I didn't say that. Okay, I don't know. I thought that's where you were going. I can't blame no one, because I don't know. Is there somebody else involved? That night? The fact is, Wes... I wish I'd never stopped that bar that night. No, you're not the only one. So do we. would be here right now. I'm sure. Everybody else. The scenario is this. Cindy's blood is in the back of your car. No question about it. It's proven scientifically.
0: The interrogator becomes increasingly frustrated as Wesley visibly shuts down and refuses to reveal any helpful information. They try to make him understand the benefits of coming clean, but he's just not having it.
1: Lauren is responsible and you're just trying to help your childhood buddy Trying to protect him. If that's what you're doing, if you, if you want, to, if you want to go down the boat, I'm not trying to help him.
0: Has he threatened you in the past? Lawrence threatens a lot of people. Well,
1: has he threatened you? Yeah, he's pulled a gun on the too. If, if there's something that happened that night, you have to tell us now. It's as simple as that. We can't make it any simpler for you. If you lied in the past, I don't care about the lies. I want the truth of what happened that night. There's blood in your car. There's a simple explanation. He knows it. I know it. It's there. Take the opportunity. Oh, the Lord, praise
0: But it wasn't long before Wesley began to shift the blame completely onto his accomplice, as Lauren had done to him. Their hesitation and unwillingness to speak in initial interviews completely vanished. And the duo continued to turn on one another as the investigation continued. At one time, the two lifelong friends had been roommates who enjoyed each other's company in a small apartment. Now, watching the interviews, You cannot tell that the two had ever felt anything resembling trust or friendship in one another. They became something more like arch enemies, taking every opportunity they could to blame their partner and pin all their horrible deeds on the other person. Both were charged with Cindy's murder, along with two others from the eighties. At this point, all inhibition on Lauren's part was gone and he went into excruciating details to explain the horrors that Wesley had inflicted upon Cindy. According to him, Wesley drove the trio to an isolated spot after they had all smoked meth together in the cemetery, and he proceeded to assault the unsuspecting young woman before taking a knife to her throat. Apparently, they had all agreed to meet up that night for drugs, but Cindy had no idea the dangerous situation she was condemning herself to when she agreed to get into Wesley's car. Lauren confessed that Cindy had begged him to help her throughout the assault, calling him Slim, an old nickname she had given him. But rather than try to assist the desperate girl in any way, he chose to remain unresponsive, watching from the car as Wesley committed atrocious crimes against Cindy and then ended her life. After their 1999 arrest, the Speed Freak killers faced their trials in 2001. Wesley went first and after an unsuccessful attempt to deny his involvement and place all the blame onto Lauren, he was found guilty of murder on four accounts. But even in this hopeless situation, Wesley still managed to maintain his arrogant and sinister disposition, refusing to reveal the location of his victim's bodies unless he was rewarded with the advertised $20,000 prize money. This request was unsurprisingly denied. At first, we wondered what use Wesley would even have for that sum of money in jail, but apparently his plan was to pass it down to his sons. Regardless, his sick little scheme didn't work out and he even denied an opportunity to avoid the death penalty in exchange for the body location information. He really was stubborn through and through, even in the face of certain death. Lauren was given a bit more of a lenient sentence. It seems that the court viewed him as the accomplice to Wesley's criminal masterminding. He was sentenced to 78 years in prison, but even though the law may have taken a little pity on Wesley's partner, they made a decision that is almost incomprehensible in its foolishness. Following an appeal in 2004, Lauren's convictions were overruled. The argument was made that he had been coerced into revealing implicating information against his will and that he had not received proper and fair treatment during the interrogation process. He was paroled in 2010, but due to an uproar of public disapproval over the court's decision to free Lauren, especially from the victim's family members, No California County wanted to take him. In response, Lauren was made to live in a trailer near the prison. This living arrangement sought to please the concerned public who for good reason didn't want the convicted killer roaming free. But his carefree life of Liberty didn't last for long. The speed free killers had long since dropped any illusions of support or camaraderie between them and Wesley was not happy to hear how easy his partner had gotten out of his sentence when he himself was landed the death penalty. In the true fashion of a vindictive soul seeking revenge at any cost, Wesley decided to take an eye for an eye and reveal all to authorities. This meant he promised to create detailed maps to lead law enforcement straight to where the bodies were buried. A move that spelled disaster for Lauren who was just beginning to feel like he had gotten away with his crimes scotch-free. Lauren had always maintained his own innocence and pushed all the responsibility onto Wesley, but clearly he had an inkling that whatever was to be found along with the bodies would prove disastrous for him. Immediately after it was announced that a bounty hunter by the name of Leonard Padilla had bribed Wesley into releasing the secret locations and information about the victim's bodies in exchange for a payment of over $30,000, Lauren was found dead in his trailer. It was January of 2012, and he had taken his own life by hanging himself. A ghastly scene reported to the police by an anonymous caller and this unceremonious death brings us to our interview with the one woman who may have managed to escape the deadly clutches of the Speed free Killers. As per her wishes, we will be keeping her name and identity anonymous. We want first to emphasize that as she herself acknowledges, there is no way to be sure if the men she crossed paths with were in fact the Speed free Killers or just another pair of sketchy guys with an uncanny resemblance to the famous duo. However, the time and place she described line up almost too perfectly with the Speed Free killer's recorded active period. Although it's almost impossible to confirm her story with complete certainty, if it was actually the two serial killers she came across that night, then that would make her the one and only woman ever to escape the deadly duo. With the devastation that the two men left in their wake, she's glad to have not stuck around to confirm their identities that night. She shared with us her reason for coming forward so long after the alarming night in
2: 1998. Um, Yeah, so the thing is, is that I know a lot of people wonder why, you know, um, why I never said it before, you know, but like, a. During the time, I just, I was trying to piece everything together and things kind of started making sense as I went, you know?
0: Regardless, we are so glad that she finally felt brave enough to come forward and share her story for the first time ever with us. She had a very thoroughly written timeline of events prepared to explain what happened that night.
2: It it was just, yeah, it happened in 1998. um, And I had went with one of my girlfriends to Delta College, Salo King, Delta College. Um, to apply, you know, for, for school and um, dropped her off at home, probably around, like it was close to nine o'clock, you know, PM. And um, I, I had recently, I joined a, a gym and so I, I forgot I had to, you know, make a payment. So I was, oh man, I needed to deposit some money, you know, towards my membership. So the bank is like right across the street from where my girlfriend lived at and it's a B of A, Bank of America. It's on 700 um, Kettleman Lane, West Kettleman Lane. And so anyhow, I was there and uh, in my car and I got out, cause you know, back in 1998, you, you had to get out to get the the envelope, the envelopes, you know, to make your deposit. So that's what I did. I got out, got my envelope, sat back in the car and then um, my instinct told me to lock my doors. Because um, I had a, a Monte Carlo two door back in the day, and then I I locked my doors, and then um, I want to say as, as I'm writing my, you know my my uh, deposit slip, um, I want to say maybe like five ten minutes after that, here comes a car like screeching um, in the parking lot, and that alerted me, and I looked up, and to my right hand side, which would have been my passenger side. Um, I saw this car, it was not a van, it wasn't a truck, it wasn't, you know, it was just a car, like a small sized car, and I don't remember the exact car that it that it was, but I just remember it dry, right, or parking right next next to me on my passenger side, and um, I was already scared because I heard the screeching as it parked next to me, and so I quickly turned on my car, and I mean it happened so fast. I turned on my car and as I was reversing my car, I just remember looking to my right hand side and I saw this white male um with a long ponytail braided and I just remember his face. It just looked very scary. And um and as I look at the pictures of Lauren Herzog, it it was his face. You know, I just I just picture, you know, I just see that face, that same face. And it was and it was so coincidental because of the fact that it was two males. So the passenger, there was a passenger male with dark hair. I just remember that. I didn't see his face. I only saw uh, the white male with the blonde, you know, blonde hair. And I remember him being tall because like, I had I looked up. But I I got out of there so quick that I mean I put it on reverse and I saw that really quick and then I just hit it on drive and took off. And of course, I was super distraught. I was scared. Because, you know, I was thinking it was just an attempted robbery or something, you know, what I mean? at the moment. I'm like, oh, my God, they were trying to, you know, steal, you know, rob me or whatever. And so I just wanted to get somewhere safe and I'm, drove home. Um, my mom was like, what's wrong? You know, because I was crying and she's like, oh, what's wrong? You know, And I was like, I, I don't know, mom, somebody approached me at the bank. And my mom was like, I told you, don't go, you know, don't go to the bank late at night. So because it was after nine, a little bit after nine when I went. And so, um, thank God I made it safe. I made it out of that situation.
0: She had luckily managed to get out of the close scrape without a hitch. But as the weeks and months went on, her strange experience in the parking lot would continue to weigh on her mind. And the more she thought about it, the more certain she grew that the two men she had seen that night were in fact, the Speed free killers in the flesh. This realization was catalyzed by the widespread coverage that Cindy Vanderheiden's case was receiving in late 1998.
2: Around November, December, when Cindy Vanderheiden became missing, is when I started seeing all her, I just saw a lot of like posters everywhere of her face, and you know, she was missing, and I was like, I wonder who, you know, this must be a local girl or what, and it didn't really make sense even then, you know, I I couldn't connect the dots then, but anyhow, that happened, and then when when um, um Wesley Shermantine started speaking up about about all the you know like where the you know the, the bodies were buried, things like that, I was like, "You know what? I bet you anything." and I just started kind of following the story, and I was like, "I don't know why I just have that feeling that those are the two men that approached me that night." You know, it just started making everything was so coincidental, the height. And then they mentioned his height, which was Lauren Herzog. He was six foot something, the the, the height, um, the, just the two men. And then, um, and then when there was a, there was a particular interview that happened between Sherman, uh, Wesley Sherman Tyne um, that he mentioned, and I, and I was trying to look for the video because I wanted to, you know, piece it together before I even spoke to you guys, you know, cause I saw it somewhere. I just don't know exactly what video it was, but it was an interview where he, where he said, you know, there was only one woman that got away. And I, it, he mentioned it was at a gas station, but you know, when, when you're high on drugs, I mean, you don't, you know, you don't, you can't really recall where I'm assuming, I'm assuming that that's, you know, the situation, but anyhow, there are a lot of gas stations in that area. They might've gone to the gas station before they even approached me. Do I know for sure that it was them that approached me? No, I, it's not for sure. But when you look at the timeline, the dates, I live in Lodi, so Lodi is not too far from Lyndon and Clements area. So it's very everything's just so coincidental that I was like, I don't know. I just have a feeling that it, those two mo- monsters—you know—I call them monsters because they were, you know, they were the ones that approached me. I just got away. And then when that when he mentioned that part. I was like, wow, this is just too close, you know?
0: She described how she was encouraged by her brother to tell the story of what happened that night. Initially, she had been hesitant as she knew people would be skeptical if she claimed she had come face to face with the Speed free killers without any proof. But all the same, she knew there was a more important reason why she had to share her story.
2: And so my brother was encouraging me. He goes, you know, since you should talk about that, you know, you should, you know, and I'm, and I'm doing it more as an awareness because I was, I did put myself in an unsafe situation, you know, being a young lady. And I, I would like to, you know, just put out there as an awareness to others, like women, you know, just to be careful, you know, to, to look, you know, uh, make sure they look around, you know, the surrounding things like that, because, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be here talking about this right now if I wouldn't have taken off because these people were very, um, they were very brutal. They They were murderers, you know?
0: We discussed how lucky it was that she had immediately locked her car doors when she sensed something sinister. You would expect kidnappers to creep up slowly and stealthily on their victims so as not to alert the person they were after. But in this case, the woman was grateful that she didn't wait to scope out the situation she locked the door, turned on the car engine, and began to reverse almost immediately.
2: That's what saved my life, to be honest with you, um, is the fact that I heard the screeching as they were, tr- it's like, what it is is they wanted, whatever they were trying to do, they wanted to do it really quick, you know what I mean? And um, and it was just, it, yeah, I mean, because I mean, as soon as I heard the screeching, I'm like, okay, who's screeching in here? Because if you look at the parking lot there at Bank of America, Um, it's a, it's a pretty closed in parking lot. It's not a very, um, it's not too of an open space, if that makes sense. You have to actually drive in there. Right. And so, and so I was kind of like thinking like, who's, who's, you know, what's going on. So that alerted me to look up and be like, oh, whoa this, this doesn't look good. And that was the first thing that came to my mind. I was like, that doesn't, this doesn't look good. You know, it's like kind of like that flight or fight kind of, you know, situation. I immediately, when I saw that, I immediately locked my doors, and I, um, I'm sorry, no, no, I locked my doors previous to that, I'm sorry, I I started my car, I started my car, and then I, I I mean, because they drove up quick, you know, and um, I already had my doors locked, but my car started right away, thank goodness, that's another thing my mom told me, she goes, you know what, I'm so thankful that that car started up right away when it did, because we always had a hard time starting up the car, you know, so yeah i i was i was able to get away from them and um i mean if it was them i'm i'm, I'm assuming that it was them just based on the timeline and everything is just so coincidental you know you know at the time when it happened i was thinking oh i i mean not that it's a minor thing but i was just kind of thinking it was just an attempted robbery i'm sure you know, something stupid like that but i didn't you know i Wish I would have reported. I didn't. I didn't because I was so terrified.
1: And I was just like,
2: oh, you know. And I was young
1: too. You know, when
2: you're young, you just kind of always oh, just somebody being stupid. But then as time went by, I was like, wow, these guys might have been the ones that approached me. You know. And thank goodness I'm here to, you know, just tell that bit of a story.
0: You know. The fact that she may never know the true intentions of the menacing men that night is haunting. And after reading the horrible things that Wesley and Lauren had done to their victims, she's beyond grateful that she thought fast that night.
2: I mean, just following the stories, you know, it, it, I don't know. I, I just, and that's what I was afraid of too, when, as I was taking off, I was like, are these, gonna, are these guys going to follow me? You know, that's the first thing that came to my mind. But they, I mean, I just remember seeing, um, the, you know, when I see pictures of Lauren Herzog, I just remember seeing that face. And I remember it just scared me, you know, and I remember, I just remember him being tall and he was the first one out of the car. I mean, he, it's like he was trying to get out to, you know, either open up my car door, I don't know, but I, I wasn't gonna hang out to see what was gonna happen next.
0: We thanked her for being gracious enough to share her chilling encounter with us and asked how this experience had affected the rest of her life.
2: I don't go to the banks at night anymore. I don't do that. Um, and I I still live in Lodi. So every time I drive by that area, I always, it always, of course, brings back those memories of like that moment that that happened to me. And, you know, um, I do, I mean, I've shared it with my, my younger sisters and just, you know, my daughter, my own daughter, you know, Hey, whatever you do, be careful, beware of your surroundings, you know, that kind of thing, because I don't want what happened to me to happen to anybody else. You know, because, like I said, that could have been a very uh, bad situation. It could have been bad. You know, I wouldn't be here to tell the story today if I didn't if I didn't take off when I did, you know. And um, I'm really grateful, you know, that I'm here. <laughs> because I know there's a lot of families that don't have their loved ones because of these two people, you know. And, um, it, yeah, it, it's just really, it's a sad situation, you know. But, yeah, it definitely has changed me a lot. I'm very, I'm, I'm very careful about things now.
0: We are so glad that our interviewee escaped the two sketchy men she saw, regardless if they were indeed the elusive speed-free killers or simply two nameless, faceless men looking to cause trouble for a young woman in a dark parking lot. But there is no denying that the speed-free killers had a brand of their own. Unmatched in cruelty, vicious acts, and disregard for the sanctity of human life. One conclusion that many investigators and theorists have come to is that the duo seemed to have found a sick satisfaction in the killings. They usually didn't have any clear motive besides just enjoying the gruesome activity of assaulting and murdering innocent people. A pattern seems to be evident in their exploits involving female victims. The two appeared to lure their victims in with the promise of drugs. And once the girls were alone with them, Sometimes having willingly entered their vehicle, finishing the task was easy for the heartless pair. But young girls weren't the only target demographic of the speed-free killers. Wesley, or maybe both he and Lauren, most likely killed for sport, picking a large portion of their victims randomly and acting on rash impulse. The picture authorities often paint of the duo gives Lauren a bit more sympathy than Wesley. Experts have said that in most serial killer duos, the two individuals involved are rarely of equal power within the operation. And to them, it is glaringly obvious that Wesley was the real mastermind behind these deadly crimes, while Lauren was more of a passive follower. But the difference in blame is minuscule. Both men hold the responsibility for the countless lives lost and families left devastated and confused for years at the disappearances of their loved ones. In the end, Wesley and Lauren were only convicted for a small fraction of the murders they are speculated to have committed. Howard King and Paul Cavanaugh are among the known victims of the duo, both having been shot in their vehicles in 1984. As recently as March, 2020, gruesome discoveries of remains have been made that are believed to be tied to the Speed free killers. A bone was found in a San Joaquin County well by a local farmer, which is eerily similar to human remains that were discovered a few years earlier and linked to the Speed Free killer case. Sheriff Withrow was reported as saying, this is somebody's resting place right now. And this is somebody's loved one. And we're going to recover this in a legal manner in an investigative manner. For now, the remains are still under investigation. In a news article, Ross Perviance, a Linden High School graduate commented, I used to live in the area where these swipes ran around. I kicked them off the ranch several times. They know where all the deep open wells are out there. I've offered to come down at my own expenses to show sheriffs where these possible sites are. I have worked on all the windmills out there, That's what I did for a living. No response. The real number of total victims who lost their lives at the hands of the Speed Freak killers may never be known. Wesley is the only surviving witness to the horrific crimes, may have even lost count himself, but their story and the daunting tale our interviewee shared, both speak volumes about the importance of always remaining aware and cognizant of one's surroundings. There are sick people like Wesley and Lauren out in the world who wish to take advantage of others for their own twisted pleasure. It is always best to be safe rather than sorry and to avoid situations and individuals that could have dark motives. If you ever feel like something is off, trust your gut.